Luke chapter 17 from verse 20 down to verse 37. This is what God's word says. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that is Jesus, answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, as we have opened your word, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is, the Son of Man. Lord, reveal him now to us. Give us understanding by your Spirit and help us to respond by faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you read through the Bible, you'll notice how often it mentions the kingdom of God. And it's not just to explain the mere fact that God is king, but that his kingdom is the very hope and joy of this world. Uh, From Genesis to Revelation, the kingdom of God is announced as good news to the world. And the world is called to rejoice in it. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, which we read one of them at the beginning of this worship service. And even our Lord Jesus announced the very same, as it says in Matthew 4.23, that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. Now, why is the kingdom of God such good news. What does this concept of his kingdom have anything to do with us or the affairs of this world? Well, the answer is everything. Because you see, there was a time in the history of this universe when this world was happily and perfectly subject to God's governing rule. 
Before sin entered the world through man's rebellious heart, this world was once the perfect domain of God's authority and his manifest presence, where God the creator dwelt with man the creature in his created world, and humanity in Adam joyfully bowed the knee to his maker and king. And that's why... Because man was in perfect submission to God's sovereign authority, that's why the conditions of the world was what it was. Paradise in the Garden of Eden. By the way, the word paradise is just a Greek word that means garden. There was no death, no pain, no suffering, no fear, no sorrow, because there was no sin. No rebellion against God who is the fountain of life and of every blessing. And as such, the world was graced with the manifest direct presence of God who so lovingly dwelt with his creation and she received him as her rightful king and ruler. That world, friends, that paradise is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God is where God rules over his people who are happily and willingly subject to him. The kingdom of God, as you can see, is simply heaven itself. To live in God's presence forever, to live under his rule and reign. But as we know, that's not the world in which we live today. We live, friends, in a fallen world, marred by sin. The Bible describes this world as now the kingdom of darkness, which has rejected God and now lives in the wreckage and the desolation of the aftermath of sin, where death reigns, lawlessness abounds, and sorrow and grief marks the normative human experience. And not a single person in this room has lived unscathed and unscarred by pain or simply sadness. Our lives, in fact, the daily news cycle testifies to the undeniable truth that we live in a fallen kingdom and everything and everyone is headed to death and despair. And every soul, therefore, deep inside, whether we realize it or not, we instinctively long to return to Eden, what we were created for. But do you see now why... God announces the gospel as the good news of the kingdom of God. Because implied in that announcement is the good news of God's kingdom once again. The hope of returning to his kingdom. It is God telling this fallen world that he has not abandoned this world as he should have. He has not left us to our ruined selves as he ought to but that he is set on redeeming it. And that redemption is the kingdom of God coming upon this fallen world, invading it, if you will. God of heaven himself breaching the gates of hell, which is the sinful world, that he might rescue sinners from their darkness and bring them into the light of his presence. And throughout history, God revealed in bits and pieces, in various ways and modes and portions, his kingdom agenda to redeem sinners. And in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel, that nation, was a microcosm of heaven on earth where God manifested his presence among the Israelites in the temple. But as glorious as that was, 
Even that was a mere shadow pointing to the day when God himself would personally come to his created world, entering earth as one of his creatures, a human being. Jesus of Nazareth was his name. You see, that day has already come 2,000 years ago. From our vantage point this morning, the kingdom of God has already arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, having stepped out of heaven and taken on humanity to come into this world to save sinners. And it's for this reason that on this particular occasion in Luke chapter 17, as the Pharisees asked Jesus in verse 20 of when the kingdom of God would come, they were really excited about it. They were wondering when it would come. He answers them plainly at the end of verse 21, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Not will be, but is here. Has come. Because the king has come. He is here, standing right there in their midst. And he is calling them and everyone to come to him, to confess their sin and to trust in him to save them, to bow the knee to his perfect and loving authority. But of course they refused, the Pharisees, they rejected him. And what a strange irony, given that these Jews, as I had mentioned, they were, they were so excited and they were eager for God's kingdom to come. That's all they were talking about. Oh, when's the kingdom coming? Oh, when's the kingdom coming? We can't wait for that day. But when... The king came, they refused him. Why? Because too many people want kingdom-like conditions on earth, but they do not want to bow the knee to the king. Everyone wants heaven. Who doesn't want heaven? But very few want the God of heaven, the heavenly ruler and king. And so just like the Pharisees They don't understand that it is the king who makes the kingdom what it is. It is the glory of God himself that makes his kingdom so glorious. It is the beauty of God that makes his heavenly abode so beautiful. It is the sovereign rule of the prince of peace that makes eternity with him so peaceful, a rest forever. There is no peace and rest outside of Christ. No life, no joy outside of being ruled by him. You see, this is very important to understand. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it is not primarily referring to some territory or region or land. But the kingdom of God primarily refers to the kingship of God, his reign, his dominion, his sovereign rule over his people. In other words, the domain of God's kingdom is first and foremost internal not external. God's kingdom has come to rule and reign over our lives, to govern our hearts, our thoughts, our actions, all of ourselves. That's what Jesus came to do and to be. Hence, Jesus' response to the Pharisees who were looking for all the wrong things as they awaited the kingdom. They were hoping for a political Messiah to topple the Roman government. And perhaps this Messiah, when he brings in his kingdom, then we'll get all the blessings, all the nice uh, fancy stuff, economic uh, boom, and all, all, the, all the wonderful things that, that just any worldly person would, would want. They wanted the world around them to be changed to their liking. But Jesus answered them in verse 20, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, meaning it's not a matter of outward display, 
Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. It's not something that happens out there, first and foremost, but it's something that happens in here. It's when the sinner's heart is changed as he turns to Christ by faith and entrusts his whole life and soul into his sovereign hands. Friends, that's what this world needs most for hearts to change. Because sin is the great problem, the root of all problems. In fact, what Jesus says at the end of verse 21, it can be rendered like this. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't telling the Pharisees that God's kingdom was within them, inside their hearts, within each of them. No, they rejected him as king. But he is speaking conceptually and generally. He's saying, look, the kingdom of God is something that is within you, not something that is outside of you. Because the problem of sin is within that we as sinners have rebelled against God's authority over our lives. And he has come, entered this world through his son to call us to return to him, to trust him, to forgive us of our rebellion and to trust him as our rightful Lord and ruler of our lives. Because this is what we were made for, to live in trusting obedience and happy submission to him who rules over his people with perfect, loving, sovereign and fatherly authority. This, friends, is the kingdom of God. He must reign over our hearts, our lives. That is our rest and peace because we were not made to be autonomous creatures. I mean, is it just me who thinks that it's not kids who are insecure at the end of the day? Adults are the most insecure people on the planet. Because as we grow up and enter adulthood, we enter into the realm of independence, at least with respect to our parents who raised us, as we should. I mean, that's just part of normal human maturation. But so quickly as we become adults, we realize how little we know, how many things can go wrong, how big the world is, and yet how small we feel. You know, kids, they, they, they don't see how big the world is. That's why you take them to the Grand Canyon. They just want to play with the little rocks down there. But we see how big the world is, and yet we know we feel very small, fearful. How much time we spend as adults worrying about the future. If this is the right decision or if that. My goodness, adults are just kids who've grown up to become big, oversized babies. And the worst part of it is we're not even cute anymore. I'm sorry. I have to preach the truth. But all of that, beloved, is meant to show us that we were never meant to govern ourselves, to be ultimately independent, self-sufficient, and self-governing. And when we try to, we only make ourselves suffer. No, we were created by the king, for the king, that we might rest in his reign over our lives. Listen, if you're here this morning and Jesus Christ is not your Savior and your Master, you have to understand that He is what you need more than anything. Your problems are not ultimately financial, circumstantial, bodily, physical, or anything external. All the things that are wrong with the world out there around you that needs to change. And of course, no doubt, there are many things wrong with the world. But at the end of the day, your greatest problem 
is within you. And you need God's kingdom, His reign to enter into you. You are a sinner who has rebelled against Him and you deserve to be cast out of His presence forever. But here's the good news that He has come. The King has come, entered this world to save sinners like you and me. He is calling you to confess your sin and rebellion, surrender yourself and relinquish your sense of self to Him. Entrust all of yourself into His loving and merciful hands. And when you do this, then it will be that the kingdom of God has come upon you, has entered into you. And then, thus, you will have entered into his kingdom, belonging to him forever. This is God's kingdom on earth. It enters into the heart of sinful man that repents and believes the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as king and savior. That is how God's kingdom has come upon this world. Now, perhaps one might wonder, is that it? I mean, not to belittle the power of God at work in the heart of a sinner, but I mean, it's a fair question to ask. If the kingdom has come and it's already here and it's something internal and invisible within the heart, with no immediate change to the things outside of one's heart, uh, society, or just even our, our physiology or just natural catastrophes, whatever, If it's all just internal, our mind, our souls, our spirit, then is there no hope for this world as a whole? Is this world destined to remain permanently given over to the reign of darkness and the propagation of death and decay and all the chaos? No. You see, God's kingdom has come through Jesus Christ. And at the same time, there's a sense in which God's kingdom has not yet fully come. And we're still waiting for that day. They're both true. It's already and not yet. Because Jesus will return a second time to consummate his kingdom. Such that the reality of his presence and reign in the hearts of believers will one day be manifested, materialized, and realized visibly and tangibly to all the corners of earth. Every part that the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. As as Jesus says in Revelation 21, Behold, I am coming to make all things new. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Death will be no more. That's a whole different world. Because we all going to die. That is a whole different world. A new earth it must be. But death will be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, nor pain for the former things will have passed away. Not only will the guilt and consequence of sin be removed, but the very presence and the effect of sin. He will return to complete the full work of redemption by renewing the world in spotless righteousness. It will be a new heavens and a new earth. And that day of his return will be a cosmic, breathtaking event, which Jesus now turns to his disciples in verse 22 and reveals to them the hope that is yet to come. He says that the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You know, what Jesus is saying here is this. As you follow me, the days will come 
when you will achingly wonder, where is he? When is he coming back? I mean, don't we feel like this many times, church? Sometimes we look around and, you know, it nearly tires me out to say every year. It just seems like the world is becoming more godless, plunging further into darkness. I mean, how many times can I say that? To no end. Or we see the reality in our lives of sorrow and grief. We see our loved ones dying or ourselves suffering illness, our bodies breaking down. Or perhaps some of you feel like you're just being crushed by the weight of trials and tribulations in your life. And you wish that he would just return and make all things new right now because you feel like you can't bear it anymore. And out of desperation, people may turn to wild speculative theories of some secret knowledge, some secret mysticism, some secret ancient thing that might unlock some hidden relief or any semblance of hope that the Messiah has already returned, whoever he may be. You know, people who end up falling into cults, especially those end times and weirdly mystical types, it's because many of those people are desperate and they're searching for anything to help them cope with the pain of living in this world. But Jesus here is telling his disciples, I know life will get hard, but keep your eyes fixed on me. Don't look for anything outside of me. I am the blessed hope. Wait for me. And know that my return is not going to be some ambiguous, confusing event where people are going to have to debate about it and they're going to have to write books about it and and start a whole movement with picket signs. There won't be time for that. Because when the king of all kings returns, it will be unmistakably clear. The whole of heaven, the entire sheet of fabric up there that we call the sky above, will make way to usher in her Lord and sovereign ruler. You know that hymn that we often sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World, the King has come. It's actually not a Christmas hymn. I don't know why I sing it at Christmas. It's actually a hymn about Jesus' second coming. Joy to the world, the King has come. It will be crystal clear. Time zones won't matter because his glory will light up every inch of the stratosphere. Revelation 1.5, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. When Jesus returns, you will know. There won't be any question about it. The whole world will stop in silence and awe as he comes to fulfill his promise to make all things new, to consummate his kingdom, to renew this world as the king returns personally, bodily, and visibly to this world. Now maybe you're wondering, why has God delayed this full consummation of his kingdom? Why couldn't he have just brought it all at Jesus' first coming? I mean, that would have been much nicer and easier, wouldn't it? Well, it's because if God had completely ushered in his kingdom with its full realization upon earth, upon Jesus' first coming, then who could enter his kingdom? The kingdom of perfect righteousness and sinlessness where nothing unclean may enter into it. We've got to understand 
heaven is only for the perfectly righteous, those whom God has declared righteous by faith in Jesus and what he has done. Apart from him, apart from what he has done, we are not righteous. As sinners, we are not entitled to be in God's presence, to go to heaven. Everyone thinks that we are, we're not. That's why the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden because they were unclean. And it's for this reason that Jesus says in verse 25, but first, but first, that kingdom is coming, but first, he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. For the sake of sinners, Christ came into the world to first suffer the wrath of God on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. It was his rejection by the Jewish leaders that took him to the cross where he suffered and died on behalf of those he came to save. This was necessary, you see, to first bring unclean sinners into his kingdom by cleansing their unrighteousness. That must be done before bringing his kingdom fully to this unclean world. You see, it is the grace and mercy of God that there are two comings of Christ. And this is the biblical doctrine of the kingdom of God. It is already and not yet. Every believer truly has already entered his kingdom by faith. They are kingdom citizens. Belong to Christ. Saved by his finished work on the cross. All the privileges of being made children of the king are given to them. It is ours. And at the same time, we still await the day not yet here. When the kingdom promises we know to be true will be consummated and manifested in this world as faith becomes sight and as hope becomes realized. And as such, the Christian lives in this tension of being in between two worlds, of fully belonging to the kingdom of God, yet physically still remaining in this world. The Christian is no longer of the world, but must still live in the world. And all the while, God is calling his people to live like they really belong to his kingdom. And it should never be that the Christian relegates kingdom living to all to some distant future because, oh, it's all in the future anyway. No, no, no. We're called to live the kingdom life now under God's governing rule. And that our life's ambition would be to grow, to seek greater manifestation of that spiritual reality within us that we are by faith, citizens of heaven, no longer of this world, and that we would live like it's true. And that's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Lord's prayer is very important because the disciples asked, hey, how do we pray? We don't know how to pray. And of all the things that Jesus said, those are the things that he said. We would do well to pray the Lord's Prayer regularly. The, the, the thought of it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, make my life more heavenly than earthly. Lord, conform my will to your good and perfect will. And the reason Jesus taught us to pray like this is because he knows how easy it is to become engrossed with the things of this worldly kingdom it's not easy living with that tension is it I mean it's really difficult trying to live life 
and see everything through the eyes of faith. When, I mean, the fact is that the eyes of our flesh, our eyeballs, can only see this world, the visible things, and the things in it. It's values, it's priorities, it's interests. It's not easy. But at least take heart in this, that you're not alone. This is a struggle of every believer. The difficulty of living by faith in the kingdom that is yet to come. And Jesus brings up two examples. First is Noah in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. God had warned Noah of the judgment yet to come. Something in the future. Genesis 6. And he believed. He trusted God. He responded by trusting God's word of loving warning. But no one else did. You ever think about how hard it was for Noah to be the only one to live so differently from the world around him? I mean, sometimes we put these Old Testament saints on a pedestal. We think they're superhuman because we just see a little snapshot of their lives where, where they, they faithfully obeyed God. But they were human too. And Noah had neighbors. Noah had a... He lived in a surrounding culture. Noah had plans for the future until God told him otherwise. Same thing with Lot, Abraham's nephew, Genesis 19. He had settled down at a town called Sodom, but it was a horribly wicked city, and God was set to destroy it in righteous judgment. And so verse 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Listen, Lot had to leave everything behind. His entire world and life in Sodom. But by contrast, both in Noah's days and Lot's days, the people around them were eating, drinking, buying, building, etc., Now, are those things wrong in and of themselves? Of course not. But it's the context in which Jesus is bringing this up. That is, that God had warned in Noah's day that the flood was coming, in Lot's day, that it would be destroyed. 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a herald, a preacher. He was warning even the people around him of what was to come. But nobody listened. Now, the question is, why didn't they listen? Yes, it was because they were unbelieving, scoffing, mocking, what have you. But here we see chiefly it was because they were preoccupied with their little lives, with their little kingdom on earth. It's not that eating, drinking, marrying, building is wrong, but the problem is that that's all life was about. They were engrossed with the temporal things of earth It doesn't even have to be sinful things. And Jesus is urging his disciples to wake up and to beware of this preoccupation. Because when he returns, he's saying, just like in Noah's days, just like in Lot's days, Jesus will return to a world mostly asleep and deaf and blind and utterly unprepared for his kingdom to come. And thus unable to enter it. Church, there is more to life than simply eating, drinking, working, retiring, whatever. I know life can feel overly busy at times, sometimes mindlessly busy. 
that's the plight of this barrier culture. Busy, busy, busy. Oh, how are you? How's your week? Busy. I, I, I say that all the time. I'm sorry. Someone asked me this morning. I said the same thing. I feel, I feel shameful. Busy, busy, busy. Where you just feel that you have no time to stop and think and ponder about eternity. Because you got your kids schooling to worry about. And then the mortgage has to be paid. And the job situation. And the family obligations. And the dentist appointment next week. So on and so forth. But in the midst of all the frenzy. Have you stopped to consider. That if the son of man. Were to return that very moment. None of those things. Will matter at all anymore. As important as some of those things may be. When he appears, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, all of your future worries and plans will be a moot point. Fade into oblivion and irrelevance because history will have come to an end. And there will be no more earthly future of this world, as it were. It's done but only the eternal future from there on in the new heavens and the new earth. And the only thing that matters is that you belong to Him. Christian, this thought here is not to simply rebuke you, but this thought is for your comfort. It's for your sanity. It's for your rest. Because if you are secure for this ultimate day, then you are secure for every day leading up to that day, the day of all days, that day which renders all other days comparatively irrelevant. If you are in Christ, it is permanently, forever, eternally well with your soul. Everything is taken care of. You can rest and be relieved of your fears and anxieties and concerns. As you set your hope on that day, that day which will be a terrible day for many, but that day which will be a day of hope and joy for you. Hence, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then we who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And how does Paul end that little passage? He ends in verse 18. Therefore, because this is true, he says, encourage one another with these words. These words, this truth, is meant to encourage you, to help you, to guard you, to sustain you, and to strengthen you as you live in light of that coming day. And when that day comes, Jesus says, verse 31, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying, be ready. Live in active anticipation for that day. Free yourself daily from over-attachment to this world, such that when He comes, you will welcome His coming with joy and be so happy to leave everything behind. If you happen to be on the roof on the day He comes and you see Him in disguise, or if you're out at work or wherever doing business, 
that the moment you see him, that there will be no impulse in you to first go back inside real quick. I just got to make sure I got to gather my belongings. Oh, I just, I, I, there was an email I had to send from next week. I got to send that first. No, 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 no. But that your heart will say, finally, it's over. Lord, I have been waiting for you. Take me to yourself. Let me be done with this world. But there will be some that day who profess Christ, who will look back. And Jesus says so somberly with just three words, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. When the day came for Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, you remember in Genesis 19, God had sent two angels to go and take Lot. And by the way, Lot, even Lot was kind of, uh, he was hesitant. But the angels literally grabbed Lot and his family to bring them out of the city to spare them from judgment. What a, what a mercy from God. And the angels instructed them to not look back. But even so, it says in Genesis 19, 26, that Lot's wife, as she was leaving, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The problem was not her eyes, nor her neck that turned, but it was her heart. She didn't want to leave because she loved Sodom. She had made her kingdom there. And though her feet were being dragged away and her body was displaced away from her home outside of the gates of Sodom, Lot's wife had left her heart behind. And God knows the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. Remember, Christian, that heaven is our home. In fact, when you see the world and you're dismayed and discouraged by it, don't let that lead you to anger and frustration ultimately. But let that lead you to long for heaven. And let that actually sanctify you and fix your gaze on Christ to be where He is. Heaven is our home, beloved. Earth is but a tent we're just camping here temporarily. You really want to live in a tent for the rest of your life, for all eternity out in the woods? Jesus said, whoever seeks to preserve his life, to hold on to it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever surrenders his life at the feet of Christ, will keep it forever. And at the end of the day, at the end of the age, there will only be two groups of people. Those who belong to Christ and His kingdom and those who don't and belong only to this world that is passing away. The day of His return will be a great separation as we see in verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Now I know some people look at these verses and they have the whole left behind Hollywood in their minds of a secret rapture. That's not what this verse is teaching. It's simply saying that that day when Jesus returns, there will be a dividing line that will cut through even the closest family ties. That even spouses, married couples who share a bed, 
one will we put in one group and the other will we put in another group? Or amongst co-workers, colleagues, working at the mill together, grinding. In that moment, one will be taken, belonging to the sheep of Christ, and the other will be consigned with the goats who do not belong to the shepherd. That is to say, each person is individually accountable to God, whether he or, or she belongs to Jesus Christ by faith. And the day of the Lord, the day the Son of Man is revealed, it will be a day of judgment upon the world. Righteous, perfect judgment. A church, for those who belong to Christ, you cannot imagine what a glorious and happy day that will be. Notice how this passage ends in verse 37. The disciples heard Jesus saying, one will be taken and the other left. And so they said to him, where, Lord? Which question is implying where will they will they be taken well they know where they're going to be left they're on earth they're going to be left there on the earth where are they going to be taken and jesus said to them where the corpse is there the vultures will gather now this sounds morbid and gruesome at first which is why many people think that jesus is talking about judgment they'll be taken away to judgment i don't think that's what he's saying because he's simply giving a graphic illustration he's not referring here to those who will be judged but he's referring to his beloved people who belong to him. And he's saying, just as how vultures flock to a carcass, even from far away, at the scent of it, because they're driven by hunger, so when Christ appears, all those who have longed and hungered to see him, they will be taken, taken to him, gathered to him, to be satisfied forever. As Jesus said plainly in Matthew 24, 31, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, at the sight of the bodily return of Christ. Do you see, church? Christ is coming again, not just to follow through on a prophecy or promise that he made or merely to check off the last item on the agenda of the plan of redemption but he is coming back for his bride the church he is coming for his beloved for each and every one of his people knowing how much each of them struggled in this life to trust him to live by faith and not by sight to to wage war against their soul to to fight the good fight of faith to cling to his promises even when they felt like giving up to persevere in faith to never relinquish their their worship of jesus even when life seemed to fall apart, but even through tears would say, still I will praise Him, still I will trust Him. And for those, for such beloved people, He is coming quickly to vindicate their faith. And that's why He says repeatedly in the final chapter of the Bible, He says multiple times in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon. 
Surely I am coming. You see, you hear the love in his voice? Saying, Don't worry. I am coming back for you, my beloved. I, I am not going to leave you. Church, do you know how sweet it will be that day? How happy we will be to leave everything behind and be gathered to Him. Let this word of Christ dwell in you richly and be the fuel that empowers you to stay the course and press on to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And may we as His church, His bride, may we respond with our lips and through our lives. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed and revered in this world and in our lives. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that we can call you our God, our King, our Lord, and our Father to belong to you, that you have made a way for us to enter into your kingdom. Oh Lord, help us to live like kingdom citizens. Help us lift our eyes to the things above and to look at the things yet afar just as the saints have done, as we are reminded in Hebrews 11, that they greeted these things from afar. Help us to persevere. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, by which we are reminded of Jesus' love for his people, and that he has given these things to us, the bread and the cup, these ordinary means to be set apart and to be used to Feed our souls as he reminds us that he is never to leave us nor forsake, forsake us, to express and to affirm his never-ending love for us. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to receive them by faith and that you would strengthen our faith by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.